0: The scripture reading from, uh, for this morning comes from Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27. It's a little lengthy, and so uh, you'll need to, to pay extra attention. This is the reading of God's word. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, How God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Dear friends, let me ask you a question How important is the ending to a story? a typical story has a beginning, middle, and end, how important is that ending to the story? I think you and I would agree it's incredibly important. How a story ends either makes it or breaks it. I mean, some of our favorite movies are those with surprise endings. I still remember walking out of the theater after watching Avengers Infinity War, And seeing all my favorite heroes turning into dust, thinking, oh my gosh, I can't believe Thanos won. For those of you who can remember, remember the buzz that was created around the movie Usual Suspects, as it too had a surprise ending. Imagine if in The Lord of the Rings, the the ring never gets destroyed and Sauron wins. How would that change the story? or if Rocky suffered a humiliating defeat to Apollo Creed and gets knocked out in the first round, how would that change the story? The point I'm trying to make is that the way a story ends could either turn tragedy into triumph or triumph into tragedy. It's vitally important. But how about you? how about your story? How will it end? Whether you think about it or not, whether you believe it or not, your story will come to an end one day. That as surely as you were born into this world, so too you will one day die. And so the question is, how will your story end? Knowing how our story ends is vital to how we live today. And thankfully, God gives us a sneak peek into our future. And it's vital that we understand what is waiting for us because it can provide an immeasurable source of strength for how we live today. And yet you and I often don't take advantage of this resource God has given us. And we live as if our tomorrow is uncertain. We live as if our story is up in the air. But that's not definite. So let's look at our passage this morning and see what God has to say about our end. In Mark chapter 12, a religious, a religious sect called the Sadducees confront Jesus. Now, who are the Sadducees? We don't know much about them because there's not much extra biblical material. What we do know about the Sadducees is that they formed the aristocratic party of Israel. And as a result, we're one of the more educated, wealthy uh, uh, parties of Judaism. And some of their distinctives were the following. They didn't believe in the entire Old Testament. They only believed that the first five books of the Bible were authoritative, what we call the Pentateuch. Yet what made them stand out the most from all other sects of Israel is that they rejected belief in the resurrection. They are what you would call today annihilationists in that they believe that the moment you died physically was also the moment you died spiritually, that there is no life after death. There is no consciousness. Once you die, that's the end. And this was definitely a minority view of Judaism. And it is this unique belief, this rejection of the resurrection, that comes to the fore here in their encounter with Jesus. You see, what they're trying to do here is persuade Jesus of believing and rejecting the resurrection. They come up with a hypothetical scenario where a woman is married seven times on separate occasions. And each husband, by the time he dies, they leave her childless. And so in this hypothetical scenario, they're asking Jesus, by the time they get to heaven, by the time this woman gets to heaven, whose wife will she be? because obviously you can't be married to seven people at the same time. And so she's going to be the first person's wife or the last person, or perhaps the husband who she was married to the longest, which one. And, and, and please note that they're not sincere in their question. They're not genuinely looking for an answer. What they're trying to do is, is demonstrate how absurd it is to believe in the resurrection. Because if you do, you'll have crazy scenarios like this land on your lap. So they're trying to ridicule belief in the resurrection through this absurd scenario. I love Jesus' response. He says in verse 24, is this not the reason you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? In other words, Jesus turns the table and says, I know what you guys are trying to do. You're trying to prove my ignorance with this story. But in fact, the very telling of this story and the question you ask proves your ignorance. You don't know your Bibles. You don't understand the power of God. And Jesus begins to explain why they are ignorant. In verse 25, he explains to them This whole idea, this question of who she's going to be married to in heaven, that's a moot question. Why? Because there is no earthly marriage in heaven. You're not going to stay married to your spouse. The institution of marriage is purely an earthly one, not a heavenly one. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking, how sad. No marriage in heaven? Are you telling me that I won't be married to my spouse anymore? Well, what's the point of heaven then? If I'm not going to be married to my spouse, isn't that why heaven exists? I mean, all the movies and TV shows say that the reason why God created heaven is so that we could be reunited with our loved ones, right? Well, before you get depressed... Let me encourage you by saying that though you won't see your spouse as your spouse in heaven, whatever affection, joy, and fulfillment you have with your spouse now will be infinitely increased when we're in heaven. Because you see, even the best of earthly marriages... The best of earthly relationships are still sabotaged by sin, selfishness, and the fall. And so our capacity for enjoyment have a ceiling because of sin. But when we're in heaven, we shall sin no more. And so our capacity for enjoyment of one another will skyrocket and increase. And so don't be sad that you won't be married anymore to your spouse, because what you'll enjoy with your former spouse will be far greater than what you're enjoying now. And another thing I want to say, Jesus' words here about marriage not existing in heaven serves as a sober corrective to what I see is often an idolization of marriage we have today. For those of us who grew up in more traditional cultures, perhaps perhaps an Asian culture or a Latino one, marriage is often seen as the completion of life. No life is complete unless you're first married. If you grew up on Disney princess movies, virtually a lot of movies end with what? The wedding. As if the goal of life is to get married married. But such a perspective doesn't fit the scriptural one. Oftentimes when I talk to my mom, I'll ask her to give me an update on how everyone is doing. And so she'll talk about my relatives. She'll talk about friends. I grew up at church. She'll say, so-and-so had a baby. So-and-so got married. So-and-so moved. And so-and-so is still single. <laughs> and then her voice kind of trails off with a kind of concern here. Yet, I think you and I can agree that no one lived a more full, more satisfying life than Jesus. And yet, he never married. Not only that, but the reason why marriage doesn't exist in heaven is because marriage, as an institution, according to the Apostle Paul, was always meant to be a means to a greater end, never the end itself. It was always meant to be a signpost that points us to the greater marriage between Jesus and the church. It was given to us as a way to get a preview, a foretaste of the divine love that God has for us, his bride. So when Jesus comes and unites himself to us, There's no need now to clamor after the signpost because the reality is already here. This is why Paul can say, if you have the gift of singleness, embrace it. Because Jesus has come, you and I can now experience in full the divine love that marriage was only a shadow of. John Piper was once asked, isn't it better to experience both earthly marriage and heavenly marriage? Why can't I have have both? I love his answer. He says, to think that you're missing out or somehow incomplete because you never got married is like someone who has an ocean of fresh water to drink, but is sad that he or she didn't get an extra teaspoon of water. Trust me, no one in heaven is going to sigh over the missing teaspoon. And so Jesus' words here, the reality that that marriage has an endpoint and gives way to a greater marriage between Jesus and the church, this serves then as a healthy corrective of what our culture often idolizes. Going back to our passage, Jesus moves on and shows that in addition to this discussion of marriage being a moot point since it doesn't exist in heaven, he says in verse 26, he refers to God's encounter with Moses at the burning bush. Specifically, Exodus chapter 3. And notice how Jesus insightfully quotes one of the books that the Sadducees trust. And Jesus points out the fact that when God speaks to Moses, he identifies himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus is telling the Sadducees the very fact that God identifies himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob proves that the resurrection exists. Now, you might be like me when I first encounter this. How? How does this self-designation prove the reality of the resurrection? Well, on the surface, the first thing God does by identifying himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is tell Moses that I'm a God of history, historic faithfulness. That I am a God who's been faithful to all of your ancestors. And since I was faithful to them, surely I will continue to be faithful to you and the nation of Israel. That's a surface point. But when you dig a little bit deeper, what God is actually doing is reminding Moses of his covenant promise to Abraham. God doesn't say, I am the God of heaven and earth. He doesn't identify himself as the God who created all things. He identifies himself as the God of Abraham. And the reason he does is he wants Moses to look back at his covenant that he made with him. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the Abrahamic covenant, it is essential that you understand this covenant because it serves as the backbone for the entire Bible, What is the Abrahamic covenant? Well, a summary of it can be found in Genesis 17, 7 through 8. And so let me read uh, these two verses for you. This is what God says to Abraham. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. What is God saying here? Few things, three things I want to point out. First, he makes an eternal promise. He calls this an everlasting covenant. What that means is this is a promise that will last forever. It has no expiration date. It's not temporarily set up to be done away with later. No, this is an eternal covenant. That's point one. Point two, he promises an everlasting relationship. I will be your God and you will be my people forever. Not for 20 years, 40 years, or until you die, I will be your God perpetually. Third, I will give you an eternal kingdom. The land of Canaan will be your possession forever. So, an eternal promise, an eternal relationship, an eternal kingdom. When Jesus comes along, what do we find? we find that Jesus comes to fulfill God's promise to Abraham. Sin stood in the way between our relationship with God. Jesus removes it so that we could have an eternal relationship with him. And then we see that the land of Canaan was only a sign a type of the kingdom of heaven, the new heavens and new earth. Because of Jesus, you and I can inherit the eternal kingdom of God forever. And so this is Jesus' point. He's telling the Sadducees, if there is no resurrection, if the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's life ended with their death, then God is a liar. How could God promise them, I will be your forever God and give you a forever kingdom? It makes no sense if the story of their lives ended with their last breath on earth. If the sum total of their lives consisted only of what they did here in this world, then God is not much of a God. He is not much of a promise keeper. He was way exaggerating about this promise he made to Abraham, about this everlasting relationship with him in this everlasting kingdom. This is why Jesus says at the end, if there is no resurrection, God would not be God of the living, but God of the dead. And so what Jesus is helping us to do is that when we evaluate Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's legacy, when we evaluate their stories, you need to see the complete picture if you only look at their story in this life, in this world, then there's not much to brag about. Oh, wow, they were faithful for a few decades and then they died. No, when you consider God's faithfulness to them, you need to see how their story ripples down through eternity. Only then do you have a fair assessment of how God is faithful to us and the impact our story has, truly. What is true for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is also true for you and me. How do you evaluate your life? Too often, you and I suffer from nearsightedness. The only thing we see is what's right in front of us. And for many of us right now, the only thing we see is frustration and disappointment. When you're young, it's easy to be full of hope and optimism. Your entire life is ahead of you, the world is your oyster. Who, uh, what will I be doing when I get older? Who will I marry? Where will I travel and live? What experiences will I explore? But as you get older, what happens? That hope and optimism slowly fades away. As you finally realize a lot of your goals and dreams, You come to the sober realization that, wow, it wasn't as great as I thought it would. Being a doctor or a lawyer isn't as fulfilling as I thought it'd be. Making six figures is really not all that. Marriage is not as blissful as I thought it would be. Raising kids is not as easy as I thought it would be. And so as you get older, your hope and optimism gives way to disappointment and jadedness and pessimism. It's at this point that you might be tempted to bitterness and resentfulness. You might wake up one morning and think to yourself, you know what? I don't know if my best years are ahead of me anymore. I think my best years might actually be behind me. God, is this what life is supposed to be like? But dear friends, may we not judge God based on a small snippet of our existence. Jesus reminds us that our earthly life Here is only an introduction to an eternal, eternal union with our Trinitarian God. Our stories do not end with death, but stretches into eternity. To judge your life based on what's happened so far would be premature. It's like judging a story before you get to the end. And so to remind us of what awaits us for those of us who trust in Jesus, let me read from Revelation 5, 11 through 14 for you. Here, John paints a glorious picture of our future. He writes, then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads, thousands upon thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And so John sees millions upon millions of heavenly hosts worshiping our God. And then in verse 13, All of creation then joins in. All of God's people join in. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor, glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. In this amazing scene John gives us a sneak peek into what awaits us in heaven where you have God the lamb and the spirit at the center and you have all of creation worshiping singing in unison bowing down before our God. Now some of you here might be thinking That actually doesn't quite excite me. You telling me that all we're going to do is worship in heaven? It's going to be like this service, but for eternity? (laughs) (laughs) But let me remind you that the God we worship, who fills us with himself, whose presence will permeate, through and through the kingdom of heaven, is the same God who created our taste buds and our enjoyment of delicious food. Is the same God who created adrenaline and the rush we get when we're excited. Is the same God who created awe and wonder when we stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon. All that we experience, the fullness of life we experience today, come from Him. And when we're in heaven, whatever capacity we have for these emotions and experiences will be superseded in glory. Every fiber and molecule of our being will be screaming with joy because we're seeing God face to face We won't be able to contain ourselves, which is why John writes, people are falling at their feet in worship. So amazing is heaven that Paul writes in Romans 8 verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Please keep in mind that Paul is someone who is well acquainted with suffering. For years, he carried the guilt of murdering brothers and sisters in the Lord. How much that weighed upon his heart and soul. He was one who suffered shipwreck, abandonment, false accusations, betrayal, Attacked every day by enemies and critics. And yet, Paul says, as intense as my suffering has been, it's not even worth comparing to what I will experience in heaven. He's not minimizing our suffering, he's maximizing our future glory. He's telling the person who's suffered cancer for years on end and to see their bodies wither away. When you're in heaven, you're going to say it was worth it. He's telling the child who was abused by their parents growing up as deep as that pain is, that anguish anguish of your mind, when you get to heaven, you're going to say it was worth it. That the glories of heaven are that good that it's not worth comparing your present troubles to the joy you will have one day. Why does God give us a sneak peek? I think it's because he knows how hard life can be here. I think he knows that there will be days where we will feel overwhelmed and suffocated and hopeless. where We'll be tempted to throw in the towel and say, I can't do this anymore. But God says, don't give up. It will be worth it. It will be worth it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, O Lord, that you remind us of how our story will end. That the hope we have is stronger than any disappointment we face today. That the hope we have is more powerful than any discouragement, more enduring than any disillusionment. We thank you, O oh Lord, that because of Jesus, you have saved the best for last. And so, Lord, whatever may be on our plates this morning, whatever trials or tribulations, We may be experiencing whatever suffering lord we may be carrying father help us to see look into eternity help us to see that one day we will reign with you and that our suffering here is but momentary a little while and so lord thank you for this reminder thank you for this hope you give us may we cling to these eternal promises so that you can provide strength for today. In Jesus' name, amen.